Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Hello and welcome to 1951 Down Place, your home for Hammer Films discussion, the monthly podcast that I, Derek M. Cook, co-host and co-produce with Scott Morris and Casey Criswell. Yes, it's Criswell, despite something that happened during the recording, I do know how to pronounce his last name. Anyway, welcome to the show. It's been a lot of fun producing the show for everybody and being involved with Scott and Casey on the podcast front. It's just been a blast, a real treat. And no, I'm not buttering them up. Well, okay, actually, I am buttering them up a little bit. You know why? People of her kingdom called her she who must be obeyed. And she was immortal. She, 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 she. She has returned to haunt the living and revenge the dead. She has returned in the form, the face, the beauty of the screen's most exciting new star, Olinka Berova, the vengeance of she. Aisha has been reborn. She is mine. Aisha! The all-woman goddess returns to bring more men to their knees and new worlds to their destruction. The Vengeance of She. That's right. The film that comes out of the 2015 Listener Pick Poll, the movie that you guys and gals want us to cover, is The Vengeance of She. And I'm going to be honest here. I'm thrilled. There's a part of me inside that's just jump up and down going, yeah, which might just be the return of my heart problems. But there is a part of me jumping up and down inside, just thrilled that Scott and Casey and I are going to cover this movie on 1951 Down Place. If you recall, way back in June 2012, in episode 10 of the podcast, we covered She. And we thought we were in for a treat because it's Peter Cushing. How can you go wrong with Peter Cushing? Well... You can go back and listen to that episode, or I'll just tell you right now, we really struggled with that movie. I think I liked it a little bit more than Scott and Casey, but it was it was a slog. And The Vengeance of She being a follow-up, a sequel to this movie, something that Scott and Casey did not want to cover, I'm thrilled that we're going to be talking about The Vengeance of She. But that's not what we're talking about this month on 1951 Down Place. <laughs> going to talk about Peter Cushing because, well, it's Hammer, Peter Cushing, our man in Frankenstein must be destroyed. This was not a first time viewing for me. I actually had seen it on the big screen back in October of last year when a local theater did a Hammer double feature of Frankenstein must be destroyed and Twins of Evil. So we crashed it over at Monster Kid Radio back in episode 148. So you can hear my thoughts about it there, or you can just stay tuned and hear my thoughts along with Scott and Casey's thoughts about the film right after this. For dear life, hold on to your blood. Because your blood is their life. 
because your nightmare is their reality. They are history's deadliest vampires, creating the panic only one man can stop. Captain Cronus, Vampire Hunter, with death at every doorway, trembling in every heart. Now, the terror must be challenged. Who lives to destroy the curse? Kill me! Kill me! Who duels to battle the undead? Her youth will pulse through your veins, my darling. Who dares to bleed the bloodthirsty? Yes, you bleed, my lord. At last, horror has met its match. Captain Cronus, Vampire Hunter, from Paramount Pictures, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. C-3PO. Loki. Mace Windu. Dr. Bruce Banner. Captain Rex. Venom. Princess Leia. Jean Grey. Darth Maul. Nick Fury. Grand Moff Tarkin. Captain America. Lando Calrissian. Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana podcast on iTunes because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. The Disney Indiana Podcast. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. Here on 1951 Down Place, we've gone through quite a few of the Frankenstein films, and, well, it's time to get to the last Frankenstein movie from Hammer that featured Cushing, Fisher, Robinson, and Bernard. We're talking about 1969's Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Welcome to 1951 Down Place. As always, I'm Derek M. Cook, and we've got Scott Morris and Casey Quizwell on the other end of my Skype. (laughs) What was that again? What? Casey Quizwell. Casey Quizwell. It's (laughs) 7.08 a.m. of this recording on my side. No, it's it's 10.08. (laughs) On my side, okay? Marriage is what brings us here together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. Well, Scott Mullis, how are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing fine, that cook. I'm glad to be on the show. (laughs) That's it. You are now Derek M. Koch to me for the rest of the day. You son of a... (laughs) I couldn't resist. (laughs) We're going to have a good time here, ladies and gentlemen. Right? You betcha. So how's it going, guys? Warm. Yeah. Moist. (laughs) Moist. Overshared. 
You asked. Man, we've gone off the rails really quickly this time. Let's get it back on track. Actually, I want to take it off track. Again? Yes. Already? I actually want to make some reference to our last month's episode before we really get into Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. I want to talk a little bit more about Die, Die, My Darling. It's still Hammer-related, right? It is still Hammer-related. All right, so it's not really off track, more just maybe like a little off-ramp and then we're going to get back on. That's true. Something, I don't know. After the show last month came out, my wife was um, reading Patton Oswalt's new book called uh, Silver Screen Fiend. And I'd like to read a small passage uh, from this book. A shimmering satanic alien insect head is hovering over London, and I can't remember if the dinosaurs are coming back or not. I've spent all of an autumn weekend, Saturday and Sunday, both days starting at 10 a.m. inside the DGA Theater, watching a marathon of Hammer Film Festival. With few exceptions, it's very rich, color-saturated marathon. It's a marathon where I'm seeing a lot of the same people over and over again. Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, the indispensable sad-eyed Michael Ripper, buxom women with creamy skin and tight, frightened mouths and impeccable diction. Now on Sunday evening, near the end of the brilliant five million miles to Earth, when our scientist hero Quatermass is realizing that maybe our perceptions of God and the devil are just psychic mind slog from a crashed alien spaceship, and the very, very British James Dolan is riding the construction crane into the glowing insect alien head to destroy the vision virus that's infecting the planet, I experienced slippage. I was practically exhausted, which didn't help, but suddenly the alien head turned into a Tallulah Bankhead's face, hovering over Hobbs End London, screaming about lipstick and God. Mummies, cavewomen, and lesbian vampires came spilling out of her mouth. A gigantic Peter Cushing, tight-lipped and driven as Dr. Frankenstein, appeared to sew Tallulah's mouth shut. But her hellish progeny were loose on the streets, and somewhere nearby, Christopher Lee opened the door to Reptile Women's Cage, and she pounced on the shambling mummy, sinking her tusky fans into the powdery, rotted shoulder. I want to see that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I want to. That's terrifying. I want to see Tallulah Bankhead as the alien in Quatermass in the Pit, floating in a giant white floating head over Hobbs End. It could be a double feature with our uh, Hammer Doctor Who team up, super team. (laughs) So now you know what this means. We've got to get Patton Oswalt on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if we got Pat Oswalt on the show, it would quickly dive into a discussion of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because he's cameoed on that several times. We wouldn't get much hammer talk in. When you say the reason we do that is because he's been on the show, it's because you wouldn't want to stop talking about it with him, right? Well, that's true. <laughs> okay, okay. I just want to make sure I understood what was going on here. I've never seen an episode. I know, I know. <gasps> Your loss. So how do we get back on track here? Well, it, he does mention Dr. Frankenstein in the uh, the movie slippage that he imagines, so we're not that far off track. Okay, all right. Are, are you done with patent slippage? I'm done with patent slippage. Now, that is pretty cool. I, I knew that he's a huge movie geek, and I've picked up his book in the bookstore and kind of glanced through it a little bit. Uh, it's got, um, what is the monster on the cover of the book? Is it the Colossus of New York or something like that? Unfortunately, Tracy had the Kindle version, so I don't know. Okay. 
Yeah, no, I flipped through it. I know he's a huge movie fan. Um, I just haven't read the book yet. So that's cool. You get a little Hammer representation in some sort of pop culture, which is nice. Classic Hammer. And Tallulah Bankhead, that's that's a stretch, but, I mean, that's digging deep. Earlier in that section of the book, he does talk about all the films that he did see during that marathon, and Die, Die, My Darling was one of the ones he mentioned. Nice. I don't remember if Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed is in that list. His loss, right? His loss, I yes. But was it our gain to having to watch it? This was a first time viewing for you, wasn't it, Scott? Correct. First time. Okay. Casey, you'd seen it before. I have. And I saw it last I've seen it a couple of times. They showed it last year at the Hollywood Theater here in Portland. So I saw it theatrically. Um, then, of course, I watched it on DVD in preparation for this. So I've seen it I a few it times. I saw it theatrically. I saw it on the big screen. <laughs> it was film, even. <laughs> I, I watched it on my iPad as we drove back from Elkhart, Indiana yesterday. As movies were meant to be seen, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, Worked for me. <laughs> Frankenstein must be destroyed. 1969. I mentioned a second ago it was the last time those four folks worked together. This was actually, I believe, the last time Bernard Robinson worked on any Hammer film. Uh, he died shortly thereafter uh, due to a heart attack. So Bernard Robinson's lush set design is in effect in this film. Terrence Fisher, Peter Cushing, and James Bernard were the other names that I mentioned. This was the last time uh, they all worked together in a Hammer film as well. Of course, Cushing would go on to play Frankenstein one more time for the studio. Uh, but Fisher, well, he did not do Monster from Hell. Anyway, it, it's nice to see the four of them get involved in a project like this. Because I really thought this movie kind of capped things off well. There are a couple of the books that I read in preparation for this, a couple of the research materials that I have here, even though they acknowledged that there were two other Frankenstein films from Hammer after this, this really could have been the end. This was the final Frankenstein as far as they're concerned. And it really kind of capped everything off nicely. And I, and I agree. Well, I have the same issue, and we'll get into it uh, from the very first one, is how does he survive the end to go on to another film? He's Dr. Frankenstein. He's crafty. He'll find a way. <laughs> Scrappy Frankenstein? Yes. <laughs> I know that I want to make these all one big chronology, but I think Hammer, even at the time, was like, well, it's Frankenstein, but it's not the same dude. You know, Curse of Frankenstein and Revenge of Frankenstein, sure, they're connected, but the rest of them, well... And the chronology and the, the continuity gets kind of loosey-goosey. Like in this one, they even say where he's from, and it's nowhere near where we first met him in Curse of Frankenstein. Uh, where, do you remember where they said he was from? I do not, unfortunately. Some small, some country somewhere else that he was a baron. Well, you also got in this film uh, the introduction of a someone that he's been working with uh, via correspondence, which I don't remember them ever mentioning before. The, oh, Dr. Brandt? The Dr. Brandt character, who was also doing brain experiments, and the two of them mm. were discussing, I'm assuming via mail at that time. I about said U.S. mail, but it wouldn't have been U.S. mail. I mean, that said, it doesn't take anything away from it. And you mentioned that other person that he was uh, corresponding with. Dr. Brandt was the name of the guy. Uh, let's go through some of the cast and all that. Who played Dr. Brandt? Dr. Brandt was George Pravda. At least at first. Right. Yeah. At least at first, yes. Depends <laughs> <laughs> on your time frame. That's true. That's true. And of course, we mentioned Peter Cushing, but we've got Veronica Carlson, another Hammer mainstay as Thorley Walters. Yeah, Thor Thorley Walters actually was a really good friend of uh, Terrence Fisher. 
which is why he ended up in a handful of the Fisher films. Playing a completely different type of character than I've seen him play, although he's got shades of previous kind of doddering, oh, Thorley Walters kind of things going on. He was one of my favorite characters in this film. Oh, isn't he great? And he's also one of the biggest problems I have with this film. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Yeah, the Walters and Fisher are really good friends. Walters actually was one of the few people from Hammer who turned up at Fisher's funeral. I read that somewhere, and it just seemed kind of odd that they would make a big point out of Walters being there, but not very many other people from Hammer. So I don't, I don't know what happened there. Simon Ward plays Carl, and this is his first film. The first film. He had just graduated from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts before uh, taking on this role. We were talking about Dr. Brandt a second ago. Should we talk about the other person who plays Brandt, sort of? Setting sure. Up, setting up Scott. Setting me up for what? what well, Scott, doing? let's don't get too attached to your brain. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't gotten to my connections part, so. Well, I'm setting. I'm, I'm, I'm laying the groundwork. Oh, you're laying the ground. You're talking foreshadowing. About, you're talking about Professor Richter. Yeah. Freddie Jones, who, yes, he will come up in my connections uh, section in a few minutes. I've heard people say that Freddie Jones makes this movie. That if it wasn't for Freddie Jones, this movie would be really difficult to watch. I, I don't know if I'd go that far, but... Yeah, he was good, but I don't know that it, it, he makes or breaks the film. I wouldn't agree that he makes or breaks the film either. Yeah. <laughs> was it Freddie Jones that said that? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Who, is there anybody else, really? We want to... I think that's pretty much it in terms of the big players, right? I I would I would count uh, Ella Brandt as a big player too. Unfortunately, well, Maxine Audrey, or Audley, I guess it is. She is involved in one of my absolute favorite scenes in this film, so I'll give her that. I, I'm I'm now very curious of what your favorite the one of your favorite scenes were that involved her. One of my favorite scenes, and it, it's not because of her, but she oh, just okay. happens to be in it. She sets it up, and then. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, uh, we went to Terrence Fisher. He was the director. This was not written by Jimmy Sangster or Anthony Hines. Thank you. Unlike all the other Frankenstein films up until this point, they were just busy doing other projects. Uh, Anthony Nelson Keyes comes up with the story. He's one of the players at Hammer. But the screenplay was written by Bert Bat. So anything that's different in this film in tone that you know kind of stands out, I would probably – point at Bert Bat as being the reason for that. Point at, attribute, blame. Well, you know, actually, no. I, I think it's good. I think what he brought to the table was interesting and refreshing. Apparently, Scott's <laughs> going to disagree, but... Apparently so. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much uh, the cast and crew that we would... I mean, that's about as far as we normally go, unless there's like a second assistant camera director on Thursday that had a James Bond connection <laughs> or something. <laughs> no, 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 no. My connection. He was on Wednesday, you knave. That's right. Oh, <laughs> damn. No, my connections this month are all in front of the camera. Are we ready for the James Bond connections? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you live in a perpetual state of always being ready for a James Bond connection, Scott. Well, my James Bond connection is the aforementioned George Pravda. He played Dr. Brandt in Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. He also appeared in 1965's Thunderball. In that, he played Ladisfa Klutz, a physicist hired by Spectre to examine and adapt the atomic bombs which the organization had stolen 
And in the film, his character actually redeems himself by uh, freeing one of the Bond girls near the end of the film and is almost rescued at the end of the film. There's Bond, the Bond girl, and uh, George Pravda's character. The three of them escape the lair. They uh, find a boat. Dr. Ladisfa is uh, thrown overboard at one point, and uh, he says he can't swim. And Bond throws him a life preserver and says there's uh, no time like the present to learn. (laughs) As he uh, takes the Bond girl off on the boat by himself. So that's my uh, my James Bond connection. That's the Roger Moore Bond? Uh, No, this is uh, Sean Connery. Sean Connery? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I also have uh, a few Disney connections. Well, before we get to Disney, um, staying on the James Bond thing. Was it a Bond picture that Roger Moore was shooting at the time that this was being shot? No. Do you know? It was he, a different... was, he was filming The Saint. Okay. But uh, I do have that as uh, something to talk about a little bit later. Okay. But uh, nope, um, Roger Moore was actually next door filming The Saint in the same studio while this was being filmed. So that's that's a tenuous James Bond connection akin to the third assistant director on a Wednesday. <laughs> but I went on screen for you, just for you, Derek. <laughs> now my Disney connections, and this one is also a special one for Derek, I'm I'm sure. And that's Oh, it's uh, like Christmas. <laughs> and that's Freddie Jones, who he was setting me up for earlier. He plays Professor Richter in Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. And uh, what's the Disney connection, Derek? I'll let you do this one. Oh, no, I don't want to steal your thunder. Yes, but it's one of your favorite films. It really is. He's the Black Cauldron, man. Yes, he is uh, uh, Dolben, the great mm-hmm. wizard in uh, 1985's The Black Cauldron. Legend has it there was once a king so cruel and so evil that the gods feared him. Since no prison could hold him, he was trapped forever in the form of a great black cauldron. The Horned King, that black-hearted devil. Walt Disney Pictures presents The Black Cauldron. Escape into a world of darkness. Are you coming? Me? Go in there? Oh, no, no, no. It's a terrible place. A world of excitement. magic of 70 millimeter photography and six track Dolby sound you will be transported to a fantasy event for the entire family look look sire it's working soon the black cauldron will be mine in the great tradition of Disney animated classics now comes the newest Disney spectacle of them all the black cauldron I love The Black Cauldron, one of my favorite Disney films, period. It's a good one. It also failed when it was first released. Unfortunately. bomb. (laughs) It was, uh, I believe, the first Disney animated feature to not have any musical numbers and rated PG, wasn't it? I believe so, yes. Yeah, and didn't Tim Burton do some work on that at one, like, wasn't he at the studio at the time? He did some of the pre-work drawings, but I don't remember if his work actually got used in the film or not. Yeah, I don't think his name turns up in the credits, but I thought he was at the studio at the time. 
Yep. He did some of the initial work. It's before he met Johnny Depp. But yes, Freddie, Freddie Jones was in The Black Cauldron. Uh, another Disney connection. I'm going to go back to George Pravda again. He is Colin Koth in the 1979 The Omega Connection, which was on the Walt Disney World of Color program. I also have Jeffrey uh, Belladon, who played the police doctor in Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. And he was uh, also Sir Godfrey in the 1962 Walt Disney Wonderful World of Color presentation of The Prince and the Pauper, The Pauper King. And now I'd like to move on to Doctor Who. Before we start this cavalcade of stars here, I'd like to once again thank uh, Don Falcos for reaching out to us and doing the research to find our Doctor Who connections. And the big one right off the top is Peter Cushing. That's right. Peter Cushing played the Doctor in two feature films. Okay, well, Casey, the Doctor is what they call him on TV. But the argument with people who watch the TV show say that the doctor that he played in Doctor Who is not really the doctor, just a doctor named Who. Is that right? As far as I know, but I haven't actually seen it. <gasps> I've seen the arguments, but... Didn't mean to interrupt, Scott, please. No, no problem. <laughs> uh, he was um, Doctor Who. He was in Doctor Who and the Daleks in 1965. It's in Daleks? Or Daleks. I, I don't watch it either, so... Casey? Daleks. Daleks, okay. I apologize. <laughs> Hello. It began just as you see here. Do you know what you have just done? You have transferred us in time and space, and I hadn't even set the controls. Now I don't know where we are. We could be anywhere in the universe and at any time. Yes, this is how it began. The adventure that started by accident, taking us out of this time and place to a lost planet. Come with us into that strange new world. I cannot guarantee your safety, but I can promise you unimagined things. You have invaded the world of the Daleks. Every move you make, we can see. You are top. We can hear. An alarm bell. They know we've escaped. They're cutting through the door. Come with us to the petrified forest. Meet the Thars. The blonde giants who have survived the monstrous rule of the Daleks. We must get to the city. They could have scanners here. Anything. I'm going back. No, you're not. We'll be killed. We'll never defeat the Daleks. Remember, we are watching you. We can destroy you. It's a trap. Go back. Run. These are the people trapped by the Daleks. Doctor Who, the brilliant science professor. The young man who triggered off this strange journey. The professor's frightened granddaughter. And the youngster who inherited her grandfather's adventurous spirit. (coughs) Doctor Who and the Daleks. Now you can see them in color on the big screen. Closer than ever before. So close you can feel their fire. So thrilling... You must be there. 
make us And Dalek's Invasion of Earth, 2150 AD from 1966. I've seen those. It's the only Doctor Who I've watched. He was also considered for the role of a Frankenstein-like character in a fourth Doctor story entitled The Brain of Morbius. Wow. That's new on me. The movies are cool. The movies are cool. They're on Blu-ray in the UK. Uh, Don Falco has also let us know that uh, George Pravda shows up once again. Uh, he appeared as Alexander Dens in The Enemy of the World, Jaeger in The Mutants, and Spandrel in The Deadly Assassin. Jeffrey Baladon, who I mentioned earlier in my Disney connections, was Oregano in The Creature from the Pit. Charlotte O'Neill, who played the mad woman that had the spiders crawling all over, played Tanaha in Snake Dance. Peter Copley, who was a principal, played Dr. Warlock in the Pyramids of Mars. Windsor Davis, who was the police sergeant, played Toby in The Evil of the Daleks. Harry Fiedler, who was an uncredited villager in Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, played played, uh, Karag in Shonda, a guard on the Armageddon Factor, and 11 other uncredited roles on Doctor Who. Michael Goldie, who was an uncredited warden in Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, played Jack Caradoc in The Dalek Invasion of Earth, and Elton Lineham in The Wheel of Space. And finally, Daphne Oxenford, who was uncredited Lady in Garden in Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, played the archivist in Dragonfire. Her performance as the elderly Agatha Christie was ultimately cut from the new series story, The Unicorn and the Wasp. Now, Don also says a special mention of Mary Shelley, the creator of the Frankenstein character, appeared in a Doctor Who comic strip called The Creative Spark. She's also appeared or been mentioned in a number of audio adventures from Big Finish. So thank you once again, Don, for all that work to come up with all those Doctor Who connections. Did I lull you guys to sleep with all of that? (laughs) No, I'm still here. I don't know what happened to Derek. I've been on mute this whole time. Is what it's (laughs) (laughs) Oops. I'm sitting here going, wow, that's neat. Oh, that's a lot of work, man. (laughs) Again, super early in the morning for me on a Sunday. (laughs) I haven't even made it through a first cup of coffee yet. No, I think that's very cool. It's very impressive. Um, I, I have very little experience with Doctor Who, so I appreciate Don sending that in. Uh, I do want to say again, though, those Doctor Who films, Peter Cushing, they're awesome. I love them. And the Blu-rays are really cool and pretty and vibrant and colorful. And Peter Cushing plays a completely different kind of character in The Doctor. Does he play the, the Doctor character like Dr. Frankenstein of the last few movies, or does he play him like he plays him in this movie? Oh, he doesn't play him like in this movie at all. <laughs> Not at all. I don't think um, he's played him like in this movie and anything else. Yeah. I can transplant his brain. If I don't, it'll die through lack of oxygen. In his nightmare mind, one more horror, one last horrendous act. Frankenstein must be destroyed. Oh, <laughs> 
Frankenstein must be destroyed. Peter Cushing, Veronica Carlson. Frankenstein must be destroyed. This picture has been rated M, suggested for mature audiences. Now, this one's a, a unique characterization. And again, I'm, I'm going to blame that on the script or put that on the script. One of the things I found really interesting about um, Peter Cushing's performance before we get into the film, at the 1994 Fanix uh, Hammer Convention in Baltimore, Maryland, his performance in this film was voted as the best given in a Hammer film. I read that. It's it's a solid performance. I like it. And I can see why the people would think that I can get into that once we get into the discussion. But I think it's a good evolution of the character. Yeah, it is. You see him from the first time we're introduced to Dr. Frankenstein. If you look them all together as a chronology, you get to see him go deeper and deeper off to that far end where he has no regard whatsoever to human life. And it's pretty fun to watch. You know, for a guy who's so intent on creating life out of nothing and brain training, you know, doing all these medical things. He just doesn't care about people very much, does he? Yeah. He's not doing it for people. He's doing it so he could be the one that discovers how. That's all he cares about. Yeah. I have trouble with that because he was collaborating with somebody in this episode or in this movie. That part of it, he doesn't seem like the type of person that would collaborate with somebody. Oh, with the Dr. Brandt? Mm-hmm. Usually from the way I see it, he's not collaborating. He's finding somebody that has something he needs, some kind of knowledge or something like that. Dr. Brandt had the formula, and he uses those people to get what he needs and then casts them aside. Yeah. So I see it more of a u- being used relationship than a uh, collaboration. Oh, I, I, I agree that he's using the characters in the film to get to that. But, but in the what's set up through dialogue in this film, he and Dr. Brandt were collaborating on a way to freeze brains basically and they were both working on it separately but they were talking to each other frankenstein's idea failed while brant's worked and then brant went crazy and so now uh, frankenstein's uh, is trying to do everything that he can to cure brant and get that information that's the that's what highlights it's not so much of a co- collaboration though because he's doing everything in his power to cure Brant's insanity not to because he's concerned about Brant and his insanity he's doing it just because he needs that formula and that's the only reason he's doing it. Yes, but before the movie started he was collaborating with Brant. That's the point I'm making. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. It's hard to argue both ways, but I mean, you can see it a lot of different ways. But I mean, it seems pretty clear, though, too, that there is if he we wouldn't have this movie if Brant didn't have that formula in his head. True, true. Because Dr. Frankenstein would have forgotten about him and moved on. Well, before we get too far into the story, Casey, do you have a uh, plot summary for us? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Peter Cushion. Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing shows up, does science. <laughs> Who was that, Casey Quizwell? <laughs> <laughs> so we start to film out. Uh, we get to see Dr. Frankenstein at the end of his last set of experiments where things start to fall apart. Uh, he's getting raided. He has a nifty escape hatch built into his lab, which apparently he starts to install as standard, we see later on in the film. <laughs> which is a big uh, concrete uh, plate in the bottom, in the floor. He dives out and disappears. Then he shows up again later, and we get to see the start of this movie. He shows up at a boarding house that's run by Veronica Carlson and I believe Freddie Jones. 
Or that wasn't him, was it? No, it was uh, Simon Ward. Simon Ward's the boyfriend. Yep. Yes. Carl and Anna. So, but we get a lot of intrigue in this movie because it does not take long for Dr. Frankenstein after he shows up. Uh, he meets Anna. He doesn't meet Carl right away. And then once he meets Carl, he realizes that Carl, has, uh, who works at the mental hospital where Dr. Brandt is staying, has some uh, other industries going on through his job. <laughs> other industries, I like it. Yes, <laughs> so where he's got some uh, he's got some racketeering going on there, and so he uses that to blackmail Carl and Anna because he knows that Carl is going to have being working that he works for the mental hospital. He's going to have his into Doctor Brandt that he needs, and he's going to have the skills to be able to assist him in whatever procedures he's coming up with. Uh, he sucks Anna in just for the sheer point that the fact that she's there and attached to Carl. So we get to watch their plot start to unfold as he starts to make his plans to sneak Dr. Brandt out of the mental hospital so he can try and transplant his brain into another healthy body. No, I take that wrong. I take that back. I'm wrong there. I did skip a step. He's decided he's going to kidnap Dr. Brandt so he can cure his insanity. But unfortunately, since while all the excitement of them breaking Dr. Brandt's body out of the mental hospital, he has a heart attack. Which forces him to have to look into the full-blown brain transplant surgery. And as Frankenstein movies go, especially with Hammer, things are going to not go smoothly. And the rest of the movie is how Dr. Frankenstein's deals with these uh, events as they start to unravel around him. So we get to see a Dr. Frankenstein's monster that is far more intelligent than what we normally see. And not your typical Dr. Frankenstein's monster. Which leads to a finale that I think seems to be a fitting end for the Dr. Frankenstein character. I will make the argument that the Dr. Frankenstein's monster is not a monster. And Dr. Yes. Frankenstein is the monster. Oh, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> so we have Dr. Frankenstein here, who's, I think it's his fourth film that we've seen. He's evolved now. So not only... Yes, it was great to see when Hammer started and Dr. Frankenstein's making Frankenstein's monster like we know from the novel and all the other movies. Now we get to see him there moving beyond that and we get to see how that character would evolve over the course of years and, you know, as you see what his interests and stuff would change. So it's really great to see that because I think they showed us a really far extreme end and it was pretty exciting to see. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you are going to say it's the same character, then yeah, I mean, it is an interesting evolution. But yeah, Scott was kind of getting at this a little bit earlier that the the continuity seems to be a little off if we are going to go that route. Yeah. Um, I, I think there are a few things here and there in the films that kind of link them. For example, in Frankenstein uh, in the Frank, uh, excuse me, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, when we get there, we'll see that Peter Cushing's hands are all burnt, which could have been a result of the what happens at the end of this movie or maybe even a previous film. It is a different Frankenstein for sure. Especially in the way he interacts with people and his, his dialogue just struck me as being completely different. And I loved it. I'm not complaining about it at all. I love, I mean, he's such a bastard in this. <laughs> uh, my favorite, my favorite moments of the movie are usually end capped or involve Cushing's Frankenstein's dialogue in how he interacts and refers to people. Yeah, he is very, very cold. This film, if I take it out of context, and, and see, 
in in my life, in the movies I watch, seem to all turn into sequels and everything. So I have a hard time watching a yeah. movie like this. And okay, yeah, it's in the Frankenstein series, but it's not in continuity with the rest of them. If if I make that disconnect, this movie is much better. I'm bringing in too much baggage from the other Frankenstein movies that I see, and I'm like, wait, he wouldn't do X, Y, or Z. And that's the problem I'm having with the film. Well, there's definitely something in here that he would not have done, depending on what cut of the film you saw, period. He would not have done, Peter Cushing would have not have done, uh, Veronica Carlson wouldn't have done, uh, the director wouldn't have done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's a different audience these days, so, man. I mean... I mean, Marvel did two Incredible Hulk films. I mean, and, and, yeah. and, and they're not connected at all. But that's kind of the exception rather than the rule. It, or, or relaunching the Spider-Man films or whatever. That's the exception, not the rule. But back then, it's not like people were watching these things on DVD or VHS or on television. You know, it's just the broadest strokes possible to recreate the character. So it's, it's a different viewing experience. So I hear and I understand your disconnect completely, man. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll own that. That's my baggage because I'm watching these closer together. I can go back and I can watch an earlier Frankenstein movie anytime I want to. Mm-hmm. And, and I totally understand that back in the 50s and 60s, you couldn't just pop in an older Frankenstein movie anytime you wanted to to see, oh, would he have done that? Or wait a minute, they set this up, but this didn't follow through. That's that's my baggage from being a modern day moviegoer and seeing these for the first time. Now, I again, if I'd have been probably like you guys and saw these films at different points in my life when I was younger and didn't really tie them all together, I might have a different experience. I had a hard time getting past the continuity issues in this film, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll totally and freely admit that's my bias of watching films. It's just how the audience, it's just how we are now. I mean, it's how we experience movies these days. I mean, back then it was a little different. And, you know, I think we're able to to make that break or disconnect as we talk about this movie. No, I think, I, I hear exactly what you're saying, brother. But then again, if I shut my brain off to that part and just enjoy this as a standalone film, it is a lot better. If I can get past the, you know, wait, he was getting to be a lot more of a sympathetic character the last couple of episodes, and now Frankenstein is a, I'll say it, he's a dick. (laughs) I like it when you call characters in old movies dicks, Scott. You've done it on Monster Kid Radio. You've done it here. That's great. I like the Disney podcast for calling people dicks. (laughs) It fits in in this film, though. Yeah, I don't have a problem with the continuity errors because, I mean, there's little nuggets here and there that would, you know, obviously there's some things that the doctor did here that he wouldn't have done in the former movies. But I don't have a problem looking at them as a whole and being bothered by changes in the continuity or everything. Part of it's because it's been so long that since I've seen all four of the movies, uh, it's been, you know, over the course of 10, 15 years. So details become a little hazy as far as some of those finer details for me. But at the same time, I do, if I'm looking at it as this doctor's transformation from the first time we met him where he creates the monster to where he becomes obsessed with creating life and doing things that nobody else has been able to do and things that he should not be able to do and whatnot, I have no problem accepting the fact that he's going to develop into this man who has no regard whatsoever against to, uh, towards humanity. He has no regards whatsoever to anybody if they get in his way and that he's just a flat-out dick. I don't have a problem with that evolution. I think it works. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I'm on the fence. I'm in the middle on this one. Um, I hear and I see where Scott's coming from. I think there are an, there's enough connective tissue to make it the same person if I really try. But he's got the collaborator. He's from a different part of the world uh, than where we're used to expect experience or expecting uh, or experiencing Frankenstein being from. So it, it is different. I don't think it detracts. So I mean, I still really enjoy a lot of this movie. But yeah, he's definitely not the the doctor who is involved with the soul, for example, with Frankenstein created woman. Yeah. You know, definitely a different cat there. Well, I know we're going to have to get to this scene that we're going to have to talk about the controversial rape scene. And in this context, if I would have watched the British version, I probably would have liked it better. Not that in, in, a, in a context of a movie, that's going to repulse me, but... It, in this film, it just it doesn't fit at all. Even though as much of a dick as he is, it's all for one goal: to get the information literally out of Doctor Brandt's head. What this scene is doing in here makes no sense whatsoever. All right, so let's talk about the rape. Uh, so. They're making the movie. The rape's not in the screenplay. They're making the film. And is it Carreras that showed up on set one day and said there's not enough sex? Put some in. Yeah, for the American audience. Hey, I'm part of that American audience. I didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but it was Carreras, right? It was Michael Carreras. Head honcho. Yeah. And he dropped off some pages and said, here you go. And walked off set and left Terrence Fisher and company left to deal with it. So one, Veronica Carlson's contract included no nudity. So you can't show any of her. Uh, two, Peter Cushing as a rapist doesn't work for me. Yeah, that's hard to swallow. So the scene is that as he's walking by Anna's bedroom one night, he looks in, he closes, the, he lets himself in, locks himself in with her. She demands the key. He offers the key, but then in a, in a dick move, <laughs> he tosses the key to the bed and then takes her. And it's really awkward. Uh, and Cushing hated it. Veronica Carlson was not happy about it. Fisher was like, ugh. He even at one point stopped the scene and said, we've got enough. We're going on. Yeah, Fisher's like, we're done. They were trying to figure out how they were going to shoot Veronica Carlson without showing anything because of the no nudity bit in her, her contract. And it wasn't like her contract said no nudity. It's just that her contract did not include nudity. So they're they're just having Cushing lay on top of her and not really showing anything. And it's just awkward. I know Cushing went on record and saying that this was awful. That, uh, quote, this character is not a sexual man. Why, why would Frankenstein do that? Now, yeah. I've thought a lot about this. And I feel like we're kind of missing the point here a little bit. And if really Carreras' idea, whoever's idea of a sex scene was rape, we're really kind of disconnecting a little bit because rape really isn't typically about sex. It's more about power and control and, you know, all this other horrible stuff. And on that note, I could see Frankenstein wanting to exert some control and some dominance over the woman, that sort of thing. But that goes in a completely even more dark area that I feel like this film doesn't need or was even involving to begin with. I don't buy that at all. Because yeah. he's already got their full control. Right. If, if she was rebelling, maybe I could buy that. But she was, she was completely they, under his control. 
they weren't rebelling or anything else. Right. And that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that se- rape doesn't equal sex. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's what I, that's where I'm kind of heading with this. Well, the the other problem I have with this, since it was added so late, and they had already had filmed scenes that happened after this. No comment on it whatsoever. Exactly. Afterwards, exactly nothing. None. Not even you know, they should have filmed a quick scene maybe where uh, Anna tells at least Carl what happened, but no, nothing. Or Veronica Carlson reacting to him walking into the room in the next scene. Some sort of flinching or something, you know, but nothing. It's just so awkward in the film. That scene makes no sense to me. And going to dark areas of my mind, the only thing I can think of is, you know, Frankenstein was getting ready to to do the the surgery on Brant. Maybe he needed to take the edge off. I don't know. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I mean, really... It doesn't make any sense. You know, that's just me trying to figure out in continuity in the movie world why he would want to do that. Yeah, I, I break my brain more thinking about that than trying to make this movie fit in the other Frankenstein movies universe because it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And that's why I think the British version of this film would be better. Yeah, because they did not include that in the British cut. Th- this scene in, the, in its inclusion is a big reason why I have issues with this film. Mm-hmm. Because not only do they not keep continuity with the other Frankenstein films, they don't keep continuity within the same film. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you, brother. So what, what do we like about the movie? Everything but that scene. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of you said you really like Thorley Walters in this. Oh, I thought he was great. I thought he was quite possibly at his most Thorliest. <laughs> He's so Thorley. <laughs> I... I I got the impression, and, and and I'm blanking on the name of the town that they're in, but he was like doing an episode of CSI, whatever that city is named, yes. <laughs> because he was so he was so single minded on focus, just like Frankenstein was on solving this case, because he berated the, the his second in command a little bit. You sent for me, Inspector. Yes, pack your bag. You're going up to Altenburg for a while. With you. Yes, with me. For how long? Until I say we come back. Might I be permitted to ask why we're going? Did you read that? In the Altenburg area, there have been four robberies in the last two weeks. All from manufacturers of surgical and laboratory equipment. And enough stuff has been taken to equip something very similar to what we saw in that cellar. But it was, it was played more as a humorous level than it was Frankenstein's dickishness <laughs> uh thorley walters man uh he kind of plays this character and i read this in one of these other books here that he's playing a character from a 1950s hammer film as opposed to a 1969 hammer film where he does have a little bit of the doddering to him and very, very kind of humorous mm-hmm. i have no problem with that whatsoever i loved him in this <laughs> and isn't he always snorting something yes yeah yes yeah. he's, he's always <laughs> But the, the one problem I have with that is where did he go the last 25 minutes, 30 minutes of the film? Yeah. Yeah. He is missing at the end. I was so, so looking forward to a scene watching this movie. I wanted to see the Thoriel Walters character as driven as he was with Frankenstein as driven as he was. I wanted to see them play in a scene together. Yeah. 
Dude, he's just he's chewing up scenery, and it's fun to watch. Oh yes, he does this in every really Hammer movie that Thorley Walters does. But I mean, he just sells himself <laughs> so completely to that role; it's great. Yeah. So, so Scott's issue is the Star Trek Two issue, where Kirk and Khan never actually interact face to face. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I see. Well, they don't even have view screens where they can talk to each other. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see where Peter Cushing is on his knees going. <laughs> Thorley! <laughs> but I was so looking forward to a scene of those two characters together in this film. I think that would have been a lot of fun. There at the end where Dr. Brandt's wife goes off to get, they say she's going off to get the, the police. I would like to have them to at least show up to witness the very end of the film. It's, yeah, like, it's yeah. like Thorley had something else to do and like the last two weeks of filming he was off doing something else and couldn't be bothered or something. He was off Thorleying. <laughs> doing whatever it is Thorleys do. Thorley, you're mistaken. <laughs> but I really liked his character a lot. Yeah. Well, he's the one that, that gives us, I think, one of, the, one of the better lines in the movie. One absolute certainty. We are looking for a doctor. Nothing is absolutely certain that this is proven. At the moment, I hold the view that we're looking for a mad and highly dangerous medical adventurer. Whether he's a doctor or not remains to be seen. A mad and highly dangerous medical adventurer. <laughs> I love that. That is pretty good. That's a perfect description. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you had some issues, though. One of you was a Scott. He had issues with uh, Mrs. Brandt, Ella Brandt. Well... The issue I have with Ella Brandt is she basically takes the role of Thorley, the, the, the role he was playing at the end of the film, she, or the screen time, I mean. Okay. You know, the scenes where, you know, she sees Cushing buying, or Frankenstein buying a flower, you know, that should have been Thorley seeing, but you know, of course, Thorley had no idea what he looked like. It's off doing a, trying to investigation, trying to follow him, and, and vent- eventually follows him to the uh, boarding house. Then, of course, Cushing takes her in and introduces her to her husband, sort of. But it's just, why is she doing the investigation? Isn't that what the police are supposed to be doing? Because she's nosy. And the police is, I mean, it's Thorley Walters. Come on. Don't tell him how to do his job. (laughs) Good point. But I do absolutely adore. Maybe that's the wrong word. I love the scene not necessarily when she finally gets to the boarding house and gets reintroduced to her husband in the new body or whatever, but I love how that scene ends. She's in there and Dr. Frankenstein is being all nice and putting on a show and introducing her and all that. And then as they're walking out, Oh yes, please come back. Blah, 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 blah. And as soon as he closes the door on her, he turns around and just deadpans to Anna and Carl. We're moving. I <laughs> love that. Oh no, I thought it was great too. That's one of my favorite moments in this entire film. And when that happened, when I saw it theatrically in film in the Hollywood theater, and, uh, when I saw when that happened, everybody just erupted in laughter because it's just like amazingly Frankenstein for this film. You so Frankenstein. I love Frankenstein's quips in this, though. I, I love the whatever I, the sarcasm, the the bluntness. I love the dialogue and the patter. I love when Carl. <laughs> When he asks Anna to make her, him a cup of coffee, and then Carl begs Frankenstein to let Anna go, you don't need her. Well, I need her to make me coffee. I love that moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just great. And I love the final fight, the final 
moment between Frankenstein and Freddie Jones. I thought that was a pretty awesome, you know, finale. So while I don't think that Freddie Jones made or break this movie, we talked about this before. Mm-hmm. I thought once we, you know, had the unveiling of the creature here and we introduced to Freddie Jones as uh, per uh, Dr. Brandt after he's been transplanted, I thought it was pretty great because there was a scene then like when he first went back to his wife's house and he's hiding behind the uh, changing screen and the monologue he's got going there. He's full blown monologuing here, but it's really good and he's very eloquent and it's very the way, you know, it's very sad and it's very bittersweet and everything, the way he's talking to his wife and talking about what's happening, what's going to happen and all that. I thought that was pretty uh, pretty solid writing there and it's pretty moving. I, I agree. I think his uh, portrayal as, as the monster, quote unquote, is solid, is really good. I, I think Frankenstein makes or break the movie, of course, but I think Freddie Jones' performance. Scott, you said that you don't think he's the monster, really. No, no. Yeah. He's... No. He's not a monster at all because he he cares for his wife. He re, he's he's trying to redeem himself because he's realized that the work that he was doing and working with Frankenstein was wrong and he shouldn't have been pursuing this goal. Yeah. And, and that's why he takes it upon himself to have that final confrontation with Frankenstein. To be fair, that's pretty much the basis of any Frankenstein movie. <laughs> True. True. <laughs> but this one, since our quote unquote monster was very well spoken, very eloquent, and fully verbal, you can actually see that get highlighted even more so than the within what you normally get. And then when you have the way that Dr. Frankenstein's written in this movie, that's obviously very so well acted by Peter Cushing, it really makes it stand out more so than any other Frankenstein movie to me, anyways. The fact that the doctor is the monster. I feel like in this one specifically, uh, we, we kind of go back to, well, I guess in all the previous films, save Curse of Frankenstein, the quote unquote monsters were all victims. And I guess even in Curse of Frankenstein, he was. But I mean, you really see that in Revenge of Frankenstein. He's he's really a victim. He didn't ask for that. And his body starts to break. Down. Well, he did ask for it, but he didn't ask for the problems that came with it. And in Frankenstein Created Woman, I mean, she really was signing up for something that she thought was good, not bad. And I, I really see that highlighted in this one, that he's more wronged than wrongdoer. Well, the one thing with this film, this monster, he's not decaying. The surgery yeah. was a success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything else, the the monster is driven by something that's gone wrong in the surgery or it's not taking and he's going to take himself out and take Frankenstein with him. Mm-hmm. This one, Dr. Brandt could have packed, you know, gone back home if he could have convinced his wife that he was who he says he was and she would take him back. They could have loaded up the carriage and, and rode away and he would have lived happily ever after. Yeah. Yeah. He wasn't dying like the rest of the monsters were. Or, no. Or, or wasn't repulsive. I mean, once the scar heels around his forehead or he can yeah, just he wear hats be, all the time. Yeah. If things were unraveling around him, he could have been a fully functioning member of society easily and blended right back in. Now, speaking of that scar, I would like to give a huge shout out to the sound design people of this film. 
because the, the there's two scenes of surgery scenes. There's the one where the actual transplant, and then there's the one where they're curing his insanity. And it's filmed in the typical Hammer surgery scene where you've got Frankenstein and his assistant. You see them standing over something. You don't see their hands. But the sound that they have <laughs> for the metal on bone sent yes. chills up my back. <laughs> it is really well done. Let's see attention to detail that Hammer brings to the table. Well, and Cushing always insisted, too, that, you know, you're not going to see my hands, but give my hands something to do anyway. Put something down there for me to start cutting into or, or manipulate. And he would also talk to his doctor like, well, I'm making another Frankenstein movie. How would this work? What would I do with my hands here? What would I hear so I can react to it accordingly? And then just the sound makes it even that much more believable. It's awesome. I mean, it really sounds, you know, you go to the dentist, you get your teeth scraped. It's like that on 11. (laughs) (laughs) It's that's really, really well done scenes. Mm -hmm. The one scene, there's also one other scene after the surgery is over, they take uh, Dr. Brandt's old body and they bury him in the flower bed. (laughs) (laughs) And then a little bit later in the movie, they have a pipe burst, Mm -hmm. which uh, you see Veronica Carlson's uh, character seeing the pipe burst. And I'm guessing, you know, at first you tend to think that whatever was buried there wasn't quite dead because it looks like it's trying to claw back up out of the ground. But it's just the pressure of the water bouncing up against the hands. But there for a split second, I'm like, whatever's under there is coming back up. Did you guys get that impression as well? Oh, yeah. I, I didn't think it was coming back up just because I, I don't know. It's it's hard to, it's been years since the first time I saw this. So I don't know what I thought. I couldn't say. I mean, having seen it since and all that, I mean, I kind of knew that's not what was happening. But again, I don't remember what my reaction was the first time. This was uh, probably the second hardest scene for Veronica to, f- to make it for this film because she had to be drenched. They actually had watering cans out and just poured water over the top of her as she's trying to um, you know, go in under the water, take the body, muscle it, and hide it behind uh, uh, one of the buildings behind a bunch of bushes. And uh, she, she stated that she was shivering so uncontrollably that she couldn't speak that her teeth were chattering so hard that she thought they were going to break. She was allowed to warm herself up in the bath of Roger Moore's dressing room with a brandy (laughs) (laughs) after that scene was over. (laughs) Now, uh, earlier we said that Roger Moore was filming next door. Uh, He was filming The Saint, and uh, Roger and uh, Veronica Carlson were friends. And he was actually on set to watch that scene. And um, from what I understand... uh, he was the one that let her use his uh, dressing room to warm up. I would like to have heard that story end a little differently. That he didn't know she'd be in the bath with a brandy when he comes <laughs> home one day working on the saint. Because I just would like to imagine what would happen if I walked in on that. Oh, my. Just saying. Actually, I need a moment. Can you give me a second? I'm kidding. I don't need to Are you a little verklempt? Uh, you know, whatever. I feel like in this one specifically, and you see this with some of the Hammer films, especially the Gothic films, 
the women went through hell, man. Because those costumes are tight and clingy and not very warm. And in this one, I mean, she's wallowing around in the mud and the water. Just they really went through hell for what they did. And they yeah. look good doing it the entire time. And, and I don't mean just like, oh, you know, oh, she's hot. I mean, they, she really kept it together as best she could. And it's, it's impressive. I mean, that's a skill. That's hard work. She looked like a person that was actually experiencing what was in the story. Right. That, that she really had to make this work so Frankenstein wouldn't take it out on them. You hear the stories of, you know, adrenaline kicking in and you just because move something that you shouldn't be able to move because Dr. Brandt's body was pretty big and she's not a very big woman. And she played that off really, really well. Mm-hmm. She's a she's a decent actress. She's done a handful of other Hammer films, right? Well, she was in um, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave. I think that was her first one in, right before this yeah. film. And Dracula dead and loving it. How do you do? I'm Thomas Renfield, solicitor from London to see Count Dracula? Oh my. Oh, oh dear. Oh dear. Oh! Children of the night. What a mess they make. I am Count... Dracula. Are you hurt? I am perfectly fine. It would take much more than that to hurt me. Come. Damn it, Casey. (laughs) (laughs) As soon as I said Dracula is risen from the grave, I knew Casey was going to say that. (laughs) Hey, I like to be consistent. <laughs> well, production on this film was interrupted twice uh, for, for good reasons. The, a television show, I believe it was called Made in Britain, came by the set one day to shoot for their television show. Hammer was about to receive a big award. I forget the name of the award off the top of my head, but they're about to receive a big award, and the television show was to uh, you know, help promote that and celebrate that and that sort of thing. Additionally, some pipe smokers... Association came by the set one day to award Peter Cushing Pipe Smoker of the Year <laughs> because of his work in like a, the BBC Sherlock Holmes series, which is funny because Peter Cushing did not like tobacco at all. But <laughs> I was going to say, I wonder how much he bragged about that one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't really read too much about it being too over budget or behind schedule. I guess it got a little behind schedule, but not much. Don't really see a lot of production problems in it. I mean, I think as a production, it holds up. I don't see any real seams. No, it seems pretty solid. Yeah. I think, yeah, like the only issue I have with production is the inclusion of the scene we talked about earlier. Right. Well, agreed. I like the music in this. It, it, again, it's James Bernard, and there are a lot of familiar riffs from the Frankenstein films. But I do like that there are a few new themes or arrangements used in this that, especially at the beginning, if you listen, there are a few notes that get played in a particular way that towards the end of the movie, they kind of get reversed or, or kind of played with a little bit as the movie's kind of coming to a climax and things are coming to an end. There's just some interesting bookends there music-wise. I think this is probably the darkest of the Frankenstein scores. Well, the fact that this was the darkest of the... Yeah. That really mirrors the fact that this was the darkest Frankenstein character. Sure. And I do like that quite a bit. 
I'm the film score guy, but the quickest way to make me feel stupid is to make me start reading a bunch of like music theory books and all that because I have no idea what I'm reading. But it does have a real dark kind of, you know, if I were to put it in some sort of contemporary context, even though this movie's from, you know, 20 plus years old, it's got an Empire Strikes Back feel versus the Star Wars feel where it's related, but it's darker. And I like that a lot in this. I don't know if there's a standalone soundtrack release for this one. If there is, and I don't own it already, I must. But it's it's really good. I really enjoy this one a lot. And, of course, we mentioned Bernard Robinson, or at least I did, about the production design, this being the last film that he worked on for Hammer. Uh, I think the production is great. I love the boarding house. I love the way they're able to turn the boarding house from you know, a, a, a house with many tenants to basically the front for a lab. I really enjoyed that. And hey, the boarding house. I love Dr. Frankenstein's interaction with the other boarders at the beginning. Dreadful business is Dr. Heidegger getting his head locked off. The world's full of maniacs. Ever crossed your mind that you never know who you're standing next to in the street? Funny you should say that. Today, I stood next to probably the worst madman of the decade. Who? Dr. Frederick Brandt. Remember him? Yes, I do. But where did you see him? Not in the street, surely? Well, of course not. I had to call at the asylum today to uh-huh. discuss a new plumbing installation. I passed him in the exercise yard. Name rings a bell, but I can't place it. Well, he's a doctor who caused an absolute pure roar in the medical world about five years ago with some fantastic and devilish notion he had about transplanting people's brains. You know, putting them from one person into another. And he claimed that anyone undergoing such surgery could survive. Absolute claptrap. I seem to recall that another fellow had the same idea at the same time. The foreigner. Oh, dear. What was his name now? Frankenstein. Baron Frankenstein. Lived in Bohemia. That's the one. They were both run out of the medical profession, weren't they? That's right. And Frankenstein was run out of his country as well. Mm. The church in particular pilloried him. The devil's disciples, the pair of them. Of course, it, it was the work that Brandt was engaged on that sent him mad, you know. Well, it must have been. Excuse me. I didn't know that you were doctors. Doctors? We're not doctors. I beg your pardon. I thought you knew what you were talking about. You're damn rude, sir. I'm afraid that stupidity always brings out the worst in me. Stupidity? Yes, stupidity. It is fools like you who have blocked progress throughout the ages. You make pronouncements on half facts that you don't understand anyway. I find your tone and manner highly objectionable, sir. But if you wish to involve yourself in an argument about it, pray explain the word progress in this context. You wouldn't understand it. But I will give you a parallel that you may just appreciate. Had man not been given to invention and experiment, then tonight, sir, you would have eaten your dinner in a cave. You would have strewn the bones about the floor and then wiped your fingers on a coat of animal skin. In fact, your lapels do look somewhat greasy. Good night. (laughs) I'm sorry, I thought you knew what you were talking about. (laughs) Oh, come on! (laughs) Speaking of, of interactions, there's the one scene where the police are searching the house and, yes. and you see Carl painting, uh-huh. and the, the policeman just looks at him several times because he recognizes him from being a doctor at the mental institution. <laughs> and I love the scene, you know, after the police leave and they walk outside, he says, he's a better doctor than he is a painter. <laughs> there's, there's a few 
really good one-line zingers in this film. It's really good. It really is. It makes me interested in learning a little bit more about the screenwriter, about Burt Bat. I don't know anything about what else he's done, but uh, yeah, I want to read more of his work. I'm looking at his uh, filmography right now, and I don't recognize... Oh, well, he did a lot of assistant director. Why am I on the assistant director list? Go back to writing. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only film he wrote. This is the only screenplay. He did assistant directing on a number of other things for Hammer as well as uh, Enemy Mine, it looks like. Oh, wow. Wow, he's uh, uh, also The Dirty Dozen, which is one of my all-time favorite films. Yeah. That's a shame that he didn't write more. This screenplay is just phenomenal. Yeah, he knew where he's going to get out on top. <laughs> One and done, man. I've already peaked. I'm out of here. Drop the mic. Yeah, he did uh, assistant directing on several other Hammer films, it looks like, as well. I see uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde is one of them. And Rasputin the Mad Monk. Plague of the Zombies. He did a lot of work for Hammer. Just it's the only time he wrote. Well, at least we have Frankenstein must be destroyed. Yeah, we'll always have England. <laughs> They're probably in Germany or something, though, aren't they? <laughs> I can't remember. Did, they never said, damn it, I wish I could find where they said he was from. Because they say he's a baron from some country that he got kicked out of. Yeah, they ran him out of the medical institution and they ran him out of the country. Oh, uh, I'm reading here that the inspector was added to the script much later in the screenwriting process. Which makes sense. And which may explain why he doesn't show up at the end of the film. Yeah. This movie needed more thoroughly and less rape. It needed a <laughs> lot less rape. The world needs a lot less rape. This is true. Close the door on that one. Overall, <laughs> what did you guys think? I enjoyed this a lot. This is one of my more favorite uh, Frankenstein movies just because it shows how evil and disassociated Dr. Frankenstein is. I think it's pretty great. Minus the rape scene. <laughs> If I view this film on its own and not in any other shared universe of Frankenstein films, I enjoyed it. Glad I watched it. If I try to tie it in with the other Frankenstein films, I really don't like this film. I like it a lot for Peter Cushing. I think he's just delightfully badass in this. I love the the dialogue. I love the quips. and I love the manipulations. I don't like the American rape scene. But overall, I kind of dig it. Casey, you were saying this is one of your favorite Frankensteins. Of the Frankensteins you've seen so far, Kate, uh, Scott, as a standalone, where does it rank for you? It's ahead of uh, Created Woman. Wow. Wow. But it's nowhere near the first one. No, Not, not even in the same zip code. Well, I say wow because I was expecting Casey's reaction. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm actually with you on this one, Scott. I actually like this one better than Created Woman as well. Even though there are no sympathetic characters in this, with the exception of what happens to Freddie Jones, with there being no real hero, I do like this a little bit more than Created Woman. Well, can't always be right, Derek. <laughs> Apparently not, Mr. Quizwell. <laughs> you may be an award winner but that doesn't mean you're always right oh god here we go again <laughs> it doesn't replace anybody's top five does it no no it's in my top five of frankenstein movies out of all six <laughs> there's, there's seven Although I don't think really many people count the horror of Frankenstein, which is the next one on the list. Yeah, the horror of Frankenstein is actually kind of a, an attempt at a reboot. So no Cushing. Oh, there's a strike against it right there. Yeah, I, I exactly. agree. It's got a lot of strikes, actually. But we'll get to that. 
Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed is available on DVD. Uh, yes, it is. I think it's been out for a long time, too. Yeah, it's been out for a while. I think it's a standalone. I don't think you have to get a box set, do you? No, I believe it is standalone. Well, now you're going to make me go look, because I don't know. It is available standalone, but I'm pretty sure it's in the available. There's a uh, set with like six of Hammer's best films that it's included in that as well. Yeah, so it's in the Horror Classics Collection, which is a $60 set with Curse of Frankenstein, Dracula's Risen from the Grave, Horror of Dracula, The Mummy, and Taste of Blood of Dracula. There's also a TCM4 pack with Horror of Dracula, Dracula's Risen from the Grave, and Curse of Frankenstein. It's for like 12 it's like 13 bucks right now on sale. On Amazon, the standalone release is out of print. However, there are used copies going for as low as three forty nine as of this recording. It's also available for streaming through Amazon, not free. You got to pay for it, and I'm assuming you can probably get your hands on it through Netflix and the like as well. Casey turned his fan on. It could be my computer fans. It's like ninety degrees in my office right now. So awesome. We'll send Veronica Carlson in there to warm up <laughs> with the brandy. Yes. Wait, does that make Casey Roger Moore? <laughs> I'm okay with that. 1969 Roger Moore. What about 2015 Roger Moore? Uh, not as much. Yeah, I would say he's more 2015 <laughs> Roger Moore. <laughs> 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 well, if anybody's got any thoughts about Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed or anything else we've talked about here on the show, we've got a few different ways you can get a hold of us. You can write us at podcast at 1951downplace.com. You can give us a call at area code 765-203-1951. Now that is a Google Voice number. It will cut you off at three minutes. If you would like to record uh, on your own equipment a MP3 or WAV file, you can uh, do that and then send it to the uh, podcast at 1951downplace.com address. You can find our website at 1951downplace.com. You can also find us on Facebook. We've got a Facebook group and a Facebook page. Just do a search for 1951 Down Place in Facebook. We also have that SpeakPipe app over on our website. I don't know if people have used that in a while. I don't think anybody's used it in a long time. We had that one a few months back. But yeah, go to 1951downplace.com. On the right, it says send a voice message. You can click on that. And if you've got a microphone hooked up to your computer, it'll record your message there. And we'll get it. Well, Scott will get it. Scott screens some messages. Now, on our last episode, we did say that we were going to announce what our listener pick for July was. Unfortunately, due to scheduling and timing, we're actually recording this before the end of the voting, which is May 15th. So we can't give you an official announcement of what the movie will be for July, even though it seems to be... I say we just call it. (laughs) I'm hoping somebody will come in and save me. And stuff the ballot box with something else. I'm- there are 18 votes for Dracula, His Risen from the Grave. Those votes don't count, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to be covering that movie eventually. Anyway, it's already on the list. And, and I realize that as we go along, we're going to have fewer and fewer choices available on the listener pick poll. But come on, guys. Go throw your votes somewhere else so that they completely... You know what? I know those 18 people want to do Vision Sushi, right? No. No. Or maybe they all want to do them in place of Casey and I. I know at least a couple of these people actually listen to the show on a regular basis. So, guys, go change your vote. To anything but Vengeance of Sheet. To Vengeance of Sheet. I completely blow it out. Show Scott and Casey what's up. (laughs) Oh, Derek, you're turning into Dr. Frankenstein. (laughs) I'm moving. (laughs) 
Well, I know what will make Derek happy, and that's what's coming up next month for June on 1951downplace.com, The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. I love me a mummy movie. I love that. I, You know, I should probably sit down and do some real hard thinking about why I love mummy movies so much. Because it's Mother's Day. It's Mummy's well, Day. <laughs> we're recording on Mummy, but it has nothing to do with my mummy fetish. <laughs> have either of you seen Curse of the Mummy's Tomb? I have not. I, I don't think I have. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, what's, what's nice for me right now, looking over our schedule, there's only one movie, and our schedule goes out to next January. There's only one movie I have seen already. So all most of the movies that we are going to be covering will all be new to me. Nice. Well, this one that we're doing, it's not my favorite of the Hammer Mummy films, but it's it hits all my mummy buttons. So, <laughs> <laughs> but That's June, and then July will be that listener pick month, which will probably be Moon Zero Two. Interestingly, isn't Moon Zero Two the next film that Hammer did at the time? The, after Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, yes. Yeah, and they dive into sci-fi western. <laughs> I can't wait to watch that one, guys. I really can't. <laughs> one of, one of the, I think it's the only Hammer movie that was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yep. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. All right. Well, if you need more Scott and Casey or me in your ear holes, because we all need that, <laughs> where can you guys be found? Well, I can be found on the Disney Indiana podcast uh, with my lovely wife, Tracy. She and I cover all things uh, Disney has to offer. In fact, our latest episode, which doing the timing is all wrong because uh, the episode that comes out the day that we're recording this uh, is our coverage of Age of Ultron. We have a spoiler-free review of the movie for you. And we also dive into the backstory and the production notes and everything. It was a fun episode to put together. Very nice. You got Cinema Fromage going again, don't you, Casey? I do. Cinema Fromage is alive and well, and so you can find us over at cinemafromage.com, where every week I sit down and watch a a movie with my lovely wife, not watch a wife, um, (laughs) where we watch... uh, I want to listen to a podcast where somebody just sits around and watches their wife. uh, It's not creepy at all. (laughs) (laughs) But Cinema Fromage, as the name implies, is... uh, dedicated to the cheesiest horror films out there. We got rules. It's got to be a movie that neither one of us have ever seen. It's got to be one that's never seen a theatrical release. So uh, it's been fun so far. It's been pretty exciting. So go check us out. We're on iTunes as well. And you can check me out every week on the Bloody Good Horror Podcast as well, where we talk about the new theatrical stuff. And we would be remiss if we didn't mention the Rondo winning Monster Kid Radio Derek's Home Podcast. Yes. I didn't hear you. What was that? I wasn't listening. Say that again. The Rondo, Rondo Award-winning Monster Kid Radio Podcast. Nice. <laughs> MonsterKidRadio.net. As of this recording, we just crossed 200 episodes. Uh, let's see. Again, looking at the calendar. Daytime is hard. I, I can't figure out what episode I'll be on by the time this goes out. But it'll be more than 200. That's fun. Uh, yeah, thank you very much um, for that, Scott. And Casey, I swear we'll get you on Monster Kid Radio at some point in the future. It's a Whatever. lot of fun, Casey. It's the best, it's, isn't it? It's the highlight of my podcasting career. The swag bags are the best. Oh, they are. 
<laughs> I put a lot of thought into this. And I've got extra ones since I've been on there multiple times. I know, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go list them on eBay. They're stackable, you know? I hate you all. <laughs> oh, I was glad I was able to re help you get that uh, Rondo Award, Derek. You were on the show once for about for five minutes. It wasn't even that long. <laughs> we'll make it happen, I swear. We just got to make the time work. We that's have a okay. movie we're going to do. We've picked out a movie. We got a movie we'll do. Yes, that's okay. I'm I'm campaigning to get Cinema Fromage nominated for a Rondo Award and never invite you on to be my wife. Thank God for that. <laughs> hey, I've already worn the lipstick in the uh, the red from last episode. Can I be on the show? <laughs> Stop talking. <laughs> Casey, have you ever watched the movie Beyond the Rave? Yes. Oh, okay. I was going to say that'd be a good hammer crossover for Cinema Fromage. Yes. I think I have seen that one. I got to look at it. It's been a while. It was the Hammer film that they, in 2008, that got released on MySpace. Yeah. That was their big comeback, wasn't it? Was it? I, it was early on there in their comeback anyways. It was. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I've never heard of it. Oh, really? Yeah. I've never seen it myself. Yeah. MySpace. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ingrid Pitt shows up in it for a second. And uh, Fifty Shades of Grey's Jamie Dornan's in it. <laughs> That's all I got. I need Veronica Carlson to make me a cup of coffee. I want a glass of brandy with her. She can put her brandy in my coffee and we'll hang out. It'll be nice. <laughs> <laughs>